0: rhythm of my pulse I'm not a supreme being I'm flesh and blood like you
1: not like me
0: like you different in appearance yes but we are both living beings we are born we grow we live and we die in all the ways that matter we are alike but you are the Picard Transfer complete.
1: Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton making it so. And we're here this week to tackle the three eras of Picard, as well as we will later in the episode talk about Tyler's experience seeing Shatner in Vancouver.
0: Yeah, Fan Expo is back. You know, one of the big uh, genre convention that goes on. It's a whole new era in this pandemic sort of world. So I'm I'm excited to talk about my experience as well as uh, the the Shatner uh, experience, <laughs> which was rather unusual. And Cam, uh, we'll get into it in a little bit uh, as well. And then I think maybe we have got a little bit of a, a Valentine's surprise related to a Star Trek celebrity that uh, we can also tackle uh, at, at the very end of this.
1: It was very kind of Philip Anglum to send that note to us. <laughs> yes. It was a little card that said, "Will you choo choo choose me?" <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> okay. So look, um, the reason that we want to talk about the, the three eras of Picard is, of course, we will be doing, you know, uh, at least for the start of the season, weekly episode reviews of Star Trek Picard when it premieres March 3rd. And I think we can definitively say that there are three eras of Picard. You know, we, of course, have the TNG era, we and he has development through that as a character. We have the film era, and then we have the spin off era. But we can say that Jean-Luc Picard, as we know him, is gone. Uh, spoiler alert. I don't know why you would be listening to this if uh, you weren't caught up though, but um, he he literally dies in the season finale of Star Trek Picard and his memories are uploaded into an Android body. Picard is dead. no, no matter what the writers want to you know frame it as, you know like I, I think was your sense that they're trying to make
1: it as if it was his soul, you know, his soul still still exists cam, but it's just a whole new body. That seemed to be the case. It's sort of the sci-fi way of doing that. And I think now, though, when we write the word Picard out, the I should be a one, and the um, A should be a four, and the the P should be a nine. Yes, exactly. That is the new spelling of Picard. Okay, I'm gonna
0: I'm gonna type that out right now, and I'm gonna refer to him as that. The uh, the what was the number four again? The A. The R? The A. Yeah. Okay, there we go. Um, I, I
1: And you know what? The D, make that a six. Sure, yes. <laughs> okay. We should have shirts made that have a photo of, like, well like, you know, dummy up kind of Robo Picard and just have that below. Anyway, it has to be okay. in, like, digital clock font. <laughs> so, uh, as it stands, his new name is 91C4R6. <laughs> yes, sounds good to me. Rolls off the top.
0: Kev, yeah. why don't we kick it off? You know, we'll talk about kind of what defines Picard throughout these eras and select some of these definitive moments as well. And maybe get into what what we can expect for season two as it, it approaches very quickly. So, look, I, I think the special thing here is that we do have Patrick Stewart that seemed to have a good grasp on I, I, at least the energy of the character, despite the fact that, you know, uh, he would soften up over the course of this, you know. I I think it's easy to pick on early TNG and the development of Picard when it's very clear that the show really didn't even know what it was trying to be at that time. But I I do appreciate that... Like, like, if I want to go into, you know, season one and figure out the episode that most reflects the, the Picard that we will know, I think it's conspiracy. And I'm not just saying that because it's... You know, probably the uh, the strongest episode maybe after Datalore would be my my favorite uh, season one episode. But datalore yeah. is not really a Picard heavy episode. you don't get you, you have the shut up Wesley line. But I really think it's conspiracy in which they are trying to hunt down, you know, the um aliens that bore into people's brain stems and all that. And it's Picard. Almost like on the run. It's kind of a thriller. And it's him using his smarts. Uh, I especially like that moment when he beams down to that planet with all the other captains. And they discuss their concerns over a, a so-called conspiracy. It's Picard being smart. Picard using his wits. And Picard like
1: having the, the confidence of the rest of the crew too. I think one of the most difficult things when they launched TNG was to differentiate between the captains. Because it feels like if you are a fan of the original series and Kirk you can't do better like that is the ultimate star trek captain and so i think they were very smart to go in a different direction and have a captain who's much more internal and as you know you cite conspiracy like that is an episode about him having to problem solve and kirk was always kind of the man of action whereas uh, picard would kind of take those moments to contemplate how to actually achieve his goal and i do think like an episode in the first season that is kind of important is encounter at farpoint where we really establish him as the defender of humanity which no one ever told Kirk he was that. Um, He was the explorer. (laughs) Thank God. I, I don't know if I want Kirk as the defender of humanity, honestly. But, like, it really underlined what this character would be about where it's not just about, you know, journeying out into the final frontier. It's about very much looking inwards at what humanity is. And so just with that simple setup in Encounter at Farpoint, we kind of carry that through that first season as rocky as it is. So... Yeah, that's the one thing that I feel like that kind of unifies those first two very tumultuous seasons is understanding the core theme of who Picard is when the theme of the show doesn't even feel like it knows what it is the first couple seasons.
0: You bring up the comparison between him and Kirk and does it feel to you as if they almost kind of like did a role reversal with the captain and the first officer in which Picard is the more Spock-like character and Riker is the more Kirk-like character?
1: Yeah, you know what? I never had thought of it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'd always thought of Riker as sort of the Kirk clone, but I never thought of Picard as representing more of that Spock figure. But no, I think you're spot on there. Or Spock you know, on. No, kind of Spock on. <laughs> it, it's kind of the, the cool character, the one in
0: control of his emotions at most times. And the thing is, I, I get what, if that was the intention, like, like, like I get it, because Spock was such a popular character as well. And I also, as you said, though, you don't want to make a kirk clone as your captain he will never live up to that and for them to go in the opposite direction i, I think was really good and the thing that i do appreciate is, is in star trek is they don't really try to repeat captains it's like everyone has a very distinct personality which lends itself you know away from those criticisms of like just trying to make like copies of the other
1: yeah and that's why i think you have fans who say i don't like this captain it's because each captain feels very specific so some are really going to grab people like everyone's going to be say or you know a bunch of people are gonna be a huge fan of Janeway and maybe some don't like Cisco or Kirk or whatever it's like there's kind of like a different captain for every taste do you think that
0: Picard is the most universally beloved captain within Star Trek fandom
1: I think so yes at this very moment in time that may change over the coming decades and how we look at some of the captains or what happens in the future of Star Trek but I think at this moment in time, yes, Picard is. And I was thinking about it um, on my walk to work this morning. Is Picard the most explored character on Star Trek? And I think like Spock is the one you go, well, what about Spock? But I feel like with the original series, you had episodes that focused on Spock, like, you know, maybe four or five that really delved into that character. But it feels like the entirety of the TNG show, whenever it was doing anything with Picard, was trying to focus on him as an individual, and then the movies are all based all around him.
0: I'd just say, just based on sheer amount of screen time, uh, I would say that he is the most explored one. It doesn't necessarily mean that he had the largest swinging arc. You know, like I, I point to somebody like Julian Bashir, who went from like a uh, boy to man. Throughout the course of the series, and his character change developed uh, a lot, but it wasn't as Julian was on screen, you know, every single episode, you know, taking up about like at least a third of the dialogue, at the very least, every single episode, and and it really lends itself to kind of explorations of this character that I, I do want to get into because there's kind of some different examples here, you know, like Chain of Command Two, that's the one like we've never seen him broken down in such a way, but he ultimately prevails you have an episode like First Duty where, okay, you know, we do make fun of Discovery a lot for the we are Starfleet. Yes, hmm. we believe in values. Card's the one who actually breaks it down and explains what those values are, uh, why we should abide by them, why they matter. Um, Inner Light, I-, I think that's the most revelatory you know, uh, episode with regards to what's going on and-, and how his own psyche is influenced moving forward after that. And Perfect mate, like this is a side of Picard we rarely, rarely see. In um, it's a kind of this intimate, vulnerable side of Picard that he likes to keep closed off, and to actually see him in this manner, where he is falling for somebody, and he knows he can't really explore it. You know, that, that that's some of the the, the best sort of a that I, I've ever seen uh, explored here on uh, Next Generation.
1: Well, I think that with Picard, there's an interesting blurring of his interpersonal life. And his duty on the ship and that the show will often find ways of introducing plot elements tied to the ship or its mission that reflect on his personal life and you don't get that as much with kirk on the original series there's the odd one where you know he hallucinates about an ex-girlfriend on shore leave or things like that but with like picard there's a lot of episodes where you know you mentioned the inner light one of the most important picard episodes ever but it's, you know, an alien probe in space that then allows us this sort of look at what Picard's life could be, you know, had he taken a different direction, and how this sort of hangs over his life decisions as to where he is r- right at that moment.
0: Uh, I'll ask you this, and it's not supposed to be a trick question. I'll give you my answer first just so you can think about it as well. But um. When was he at his zenith as a well-rounded character, both as a, a a captain, a leader, a human being with vulnerabilities, somebody with nuance that that's knack for diplomacy? I, I I think it's kind of a probably an easy answer to give. Maybe it's super obvious, but um, I'll have to say it it's the last episode of the entire series. I think it's all good things. And we're also seeing Picard. From essentially all these different eras that we're speaking about, you know, early on in TNG's run through the present day, all the way past to like the current spin-off era that we are in right now, we see him as these very different characters and we follow him on this path, but we also know that he is an incredibly smart and capable person. We see this in all of those timelines. And it's, I don't know, I, I just, it's very rare that I think you have a show that does your character the best by the time you get to the very final episode after 170 prior adventures.
1: Yeah, I think that moment where he sits down at the card table, it's sort of like cementing his place within that group, and we just walk out of that episode just feeling like we're floating on air because it's like, yes, we finally had that acknowledgement of the family aspect with Picard and how much he matters to them, but also as a leader, how there is like a lot of kind of reverence towards him. I think that when I think of Picard as like, Kind of like peak Picard on the show where I go, this is an inspiring captain I can get behind. It's not so much to do with like group situations, you know, on the bridge or something. It's episodes like Measure of a Man or the Drumhead where I'm seeing him argue for something. And just the way he does it so passionately and eloquently and in a way where you're just so on board with him... And it's just that much more powerful to see him make these really compelling arguments. It's something we hadn't really seen because like Kirk talks computers down um, and he does it very well, but it's not, it doesn't feel as like emotionally um, powerful as when Picard has episodes like this. When do you think he came into his own throughout the course of TNG's run? That's an excellent question. Is it measure of a man when he is defending Data? I, I I think that might be kind of the first hints
0: of it, mm-hmm. you know, but it's um I and I it's a go-to episode for me though, but I I would say who watches the Watchers is yeah. where you have like a new writing staff, you have a new writing philosophy and outlook and I think they can go back to an episode like Measure of a Man, tap into what they saw with Patrick Stewart there. And then you deliver something like Who Watches the Watchers where you have a guy who's in a no-win situation and he has to uh, diplomat his way out of uh, this very tough, tough <laughs> circumstances that he's found himself in. I I, I think from there that they that might be kind of the one-two punch, you know, season two, season three, when they, they really figure out
1: where this character is hitting uh, the number 11 button. See, I was going to argue that the Ensigns of Command was his... Uh... <laughs> Peak moment of ordering Jordy to fix, like, the uh, transporter. But, uh, no, no. I think that is a great choice. Um, I was trying to think if there was something else that jumps out, but it's hard to argue against who Watches, The Watchers. And actually, when I look at TNG, if it's not episodes like Drumhead or Measure of a Man, the, like, moments of just pure Picard, the inspiring captain that makes me want to watch the show and why I love the show is those moments in who watches the watchers or first contact where he's mm. explaining the federation and starfleet and what it means to you know these visiting alien dignitaries and it's like i find those sequences so powerful and i can watch them over and over again they don't feel talky and sometimes well you know we, we've encountered some you know star trek episodes along the way that are kind of dull because they're so over talky and not that interesting but when picard talks there's like a poetry to everything he says and i am just like hanging on the edge of my seat just to hear him give like kind of these monologues. Okay, uh, perhaps don't make fun of me too much. Uh, but <laughs> I, it,
0: like, I I I might point to an episode. Uh, I think it was Homeward. Is that the one with Nikolai Ryzhenco? And uh, we have that entire planet that is kind of doomed, and uh, Worf's brother uh, essentially is like, "Oh, I'm gonna save them anyway." And one of the um, uh, primitive aliens escapes onto the ship. And discovers himself there, and Picard's like, okay, well, you can either come with us and explore this galaxy, or else we can put you back with your people. And it's just kind of one of those tough, knowing situations. Even in, like, a real subpar episode, uh, you know, Patrick Stewart's still able to kill it, even if the material isn't quite there.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one thing about Patrick Stewart. Is there an episode of TNG where he's, like, bad, or seems like he's phoning it in?
0: No, never. I, I will say that definitively.
1: Yeah, like, it feels like the character of Picard is just one of the most consistent characters in the history of Star Trek. But on TNG, even from the very beginning, you can say that they don't quite know how to use him or employ him to the best of his abilities through those first two seasons. But even when he's there, I never feel like when I go back and watch those episodes that I'm not watching on model Picard. Well... We are going to go off model to a certain
0: degree, though, with with the film era. And in which, look, the first time we really get to see him uh, outside of a sailor's uniform mm-hmm. is him crying his eyes out looking through a photo album uh, because for some reason they decided they were going to uh, burn his brother and, and nephew to death, which is just like a horrible, horrible thing to do. But it, it's not really how you introduce your protagonist. In a story such as as the one that they're trying to tell, which is essentially like kind of the way that you you know bring TNG to the big screen, and I don't know, like this is kind of Picard at maybe his most underwhelming for me because we don't quite get the action hero Picard that we're gonna see in First Contact and Insurrection especially, and we don't quite get the best the TNG Picard here. Essentially, his mission is to go convince Kirk to stop chopping wood and riding horses and come help them, <laughs> you know, save a desert planet no one's heard of. And, you know, we figure Kirk or Picard's gonna do it. And, well, I guess he succeeds. I, I don't know. It's just like, this is not the best, you know, step into the film franchise for a, a character such as Picard, who is now your
1: your lead in a movie. I think they could have done something interesting here where you have this Kirk who's lost and Picard has to really give one of the you know great picard monologues to convince kirk to come back and i wonder if there was like you know egos behind the scenes like uh, maybe like shatner or, you know doesn't want kirk to kind of be lectured by picard or anything like that like i wonder if by pairing those two up you kind of undercut picard's ability to kind of stand above everything and kind of give this grand sermon about what the story is about and what the character should be doing because it, it, like you said, it's kind of it's not action Picard, and the action in it is kind of awkward, like him crawling through the you know the rock wall and stuff like that. It doesn't feel like it's as focused as in when you get to the follow up movies where they understand how to use Picard as an action figure. But like um, it also doesn't feel like that inspiring Picard. I don't. I guess I can like look at that moment where he gives the speech about. You know, time stalking us like a predator and all that sort of stuff and what time truly means because ultimately this episode is very much about, uh, this film I should say, is very much about Picard grappling with mortality as so many Star Trek captains do over and over again. Um, but it just doesn't feel like it gives the majesty to that sort of discovery of his and the way that he conveys his you know, thoughts and ideas in words and it also doesn't give you the action stuff.
0: Well, speaking of which, we jump over to First Contact, and this is where we get the first real action hero Picard, which is very unlike what we saw in the TV series. And it's essentially him grappling, not with mortality in this case, but grappling with his own just unrelenting hatred for what the Borg did to him. And look, maybe it's treading old ground because we did see it in Family, which was done in, in, in a fantastic fashion. But look, it's still kind of fun. I'm just and also watching Patrick Stewart just flex those biceps uh, throughout, hmm. you know, good on him. But again, it's like his problem solving in this, it's via brute force versus, you know, talking people out of things. And look, he's not going to talk the Boar Queen out of her plan. It's essentially Data comes to the rescue by the very end, and Picard's there to climb through, like, hanging hoses to escape that plasma so it's a very very different Picard I think it might be the most radical jump in Picard's character that we've seen through all the iterations of him in, in the preceding let's say 175 hours
1: yeah and I think this film does some things very smartly I think revisiting the best of both worlds story which is so important to that character and just um, you know, what it did to him psychologically being turned into, like, lacutus was... I mean, it had to be done, and it was done very well, I think, in terms of grappling with that for the character. But it feels also like they understand, in this movie, how to write what is essentially, basically, a more action-based Picard for a general audience. It's not my favorite Picard, but I think they do a good job of giving him that intensity, giving him those big moments, but still throwing in something like... You know, when he's talking to Lily Sloan, looking out through the observation window in that ill-defined room where I don't really know where it is, or um, also just the way that he um, does the, you know, this line and no further. Like, there is an intensity to at least the words. Like, I, I don't know that Patrick Stewart can deliver any dialogue and not sound, you know, like, and just grab your attention instantly, but it feels like they're still like, okay, give him really memorable things to say that, you know, fans are going to quote and remember.
0: And look, I, I'm not bagging on this version of Picard. It's just he's very different than what made me come to like him. And I, I think he was look. No matter what you have, Patrick Stewart, I, he, he, like you, you alluded to it that. Like he never really seems to phone it in, and he has this presence about him. He has like this charisma, and even if you're making him play like a, a different kind of character, he's still grappling with issues that we as the audience are familiar with when it comes to the whole Borg stuff. Look, the, this action hero Picard, it still works for me. We're, we're maybe getting into territory with Insurrection, where that movie, I, I think it is not as bad as people might remember. It's actually a, a perfectly watchable sort of adventure. But this is where Patrick Stewart has that associate producer's credit, even though he denies it uh, when we we're at a convention. <laughs> he was very confused when somebody asked him what an associate producer credit meant. And um, but, but this is where he is sending a lot of notes to the writer and we know that based on Michael Piller's uh, book called Fade In that documented uh, the writing of Star Trek Insurrection his notes Cam were so insightful so fascinating and it wasn't like he was just talking about how we make Picard better but how do we have better stories to tell for the rest of the cast too I guess the memos for say Deanna and Beverly got missed. I don't know. <laughs> um, that said, um, this is action hero Picard, where he he uh, Patrick has always been asking for more chances to pew 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 and more chances to hook up with uh, a some woman. You know, we're we're getting that both here. But Cam, I don't know, it doesn't quite translate, and I don't know if this is really what audiences are are really looking for when they think of an adventure with Picard and Company.
1: Yeah, I mean, it feels like they're trying to do kind of like a Western also. And, you know, Patrick Stewart did direct Fistful of Datas, so maybe there was some (laughs) (laughs) genuine excitement there. I guess when I look at Insurrection, you can say, like, we're seeing a more loosened up Picard. We see him dancing and things like that, which you never would have seen or even imagined in the first few seasons of TNG where he seems so stiff and awkward around other people. So I can track a character journey there. Um, I guess you can also look at the romance in that film he has with, was the character's name Dodge or something? Uh, No, uh, Dodge was in the spin-off series as
0: one of Data's quote-unquote daughters. Yeah, that's uh, right.
1: I think, was it Anish? That's right. Yes, I believe that's right. Yeah, Um, Donna Murphy's character. Um, You look at the Picard romances of the past, and they often felt like someone who is uncomfortable in their skin and having to kind of find sort of an inner strength to progress with some sort of romance or relationship in those episodes I'm thinking of, like... Captain's Holiday. He seems very awkward and he meets Vash, and then Lessons as well is a, you know, very difficult episode for Picard. But when I look at the romance going on in Insurrection, it feels like someone who's more comfortable in their skin, and it sort of understands that as important as it is to be the sort of stature of the best that Starfleet has to offer, he is allowed to have a personal life. You
0: know, is there a moment where he's leaning in towards diplomacy here? It's like he has that one sequence with admiral doherty Hmm. and they argue doherty (laughs) tells him to follow orders and that's kind of it
1: yeah um yeah not a lot with (laughs) ruafo
0: yeah um he does do a lot of uh gilbert and sullivan uh, you know throughout this so it's not just dancing but singing as well
1: yeah and i don't really know what to make of scenes like this like Remember um, in Allegiance, um, the episode where like Imposter Picard was like singing songs <laughs> in yes. Ten Forward? You see him doing Gilbert and Sullivan, and it's almost like, is this Imposter Picard? Because it doesn't feel like something you would have ever seen Picard do. And I think part of it is they were just loopy when they were going through all these script drafts of Insurrection, and the final result is kind of weird with not just Picard stuff, you know, Beverly and Troy dialogue that's really weird. Like the whole movie is kind of weird. And goofy and more overtly comedic than a lot of other Star Trek stories. But it's tough to watch the movie and not just apply that to the character of Picard and go like, okay, this is clearly like a guy who's getting older. And maybe uh, Patrick Stewart's talked about how season one, TNG, you know, he was barking at the the cast about not taking things seriously and kind of had to learn to lighten up and have fun. And I almost wonder if he's just taking that to heart through the character at this point. It's also... Does he want to keep
0: you know treading the same ground? You know like like I've done this before with the character. Like where what are the you know pockets of his personality that have not yet been explored? I can understand that inclination, but it's not necessarily the most interesting parts of his character.
1: I have a question for you. When you look at Picard in TNG the show, I think pretty much any Trek fan will tell you he's like if you ask them to name a word to describe how they feel towards him, you'd probably hear inspiring. I feel like that is one that would really jump out to people. But when you watch Picard in the movies, do you find him to be inspiring?
0: I that is a very good question, and I'm trying to recall what would be his most inspiring moment. It's certainly not when he walks up to a wharf in first contact and calls him a coward. No. It's um you know maybe when he's talking to Data about feeling the hull of the Phoenix, but it's not as if He's trying to inspire him in, on, on a mission of any sorts. And it's actually the crew that's already behind him to saddle up lock and load in Insurrection. And Cam, if your most inspiring moment in the final movie is riding on a dune buggy, like I think, <laughs> I think he got some problems there. Like I, I, Yeah, it, it's interesting that you framed it that way. I, I never thought of that, about that. He's not, he's not particularly
1: inspiring in the film franchise. Like, you can say there's still dignity to the character, and he has a lot of depth to him, but you don't look at him the same way you did when you're talking about an episode like Who Watches the Watchers, and he's explaining the Federation. Like, that is inspiring to listen to, and they don't really give him those moments in the movies, and I wonder if it was just like they thought, well, general audience isn't here to be inspired, they just want action.
0: It's so funny though, because like if you look at the ratings for TNG, and you could tell that it was a much beloved show. Um, it's funny that they thought that film audiences will not turn out to see that same character. Like, look, I, I realize you got to amp up the action and, and all that. Like, if you're plowing that much money in, which at the time it looks like just peanuts, uh, but back then you know it's like forty, fifty million dollars, or maybe even I think thirty million for generations i i just wonder if there are moments that they could have drawn from the character more from the series as well
1: yeah because i i don't know when i look at the original series movies they had a lot of spock moments that i think an audience would find inspiring and they gave kirk the odd one there's some stuff in wrath of khan in particular and it feels like they were very comfortable giving the audience what made those characters so popular in the first place on the show. Whereas it feels like with Picard, when they translated him to movies, they were more nervous about it or something. Like they were just like, oh, we can't quite do what we've been doing. The audience isn't going to accept this. And I don't know that that's true. I think audiences actually will, you know, um, will love a character if if it works. I don't know. I think it was just kind of a strange decision.
0: I also think that the 90s were probably the last period in uh, cinema where maybe you had that opportunity to do, you know, something... Like a, a a big enough sort of landscape and platform, uh, as well as kind of digging deeper into a character. I, I just think of you know they did that in Star Trek six, not you know three years earlier though. Mm-hmm. You know, like that that's kind of uh, that's why I'm kind of surprised that they ended up going in that direction in the in the last uh, or in those four TNG movies.
1: Yeah, especially when we're talking about like ins- uh, insurrection, which. I don't know that it was even giving people action that would, like, wow a mainstream audience. <laughs> so yeah, you kind of lose really. both. You don't have the inspiring Picard stuff, and you're also pulling back, really, on the production values that they would get on other, you know, action or sci-fi franchises.
0: Well, they they wanted to amp up the action in Nemesis, but it's just kind of like the movie feels a bit like a slog, you yeah. know? And I'm trying to think of, like, Picard's most inspiring moments. You know, him talking to Shinzon. I I think you've got two great actors going back and forth there between uh, Tom Hardy and-, and Patrick Stewart. But it just seems as if there- there's a certain spark or energy missing from yeah. Patrick Stewart in this movie. I- I'm not saying he phoned it in. I'm just saying, like, I... I- it was the one time in any of these films where it seemed as if we are getting like old man Picard from All Good Things versus kind of the uh, the, the fresh guy that we, we would get in uh, the, the uh, flashbacks back to uh, Encounter
1: on Farpoint in All Good Things. Do you think there was a bit of a loss of confidence after the performance of Insurrection? Because Nemesis, you know, they bring in Stuart Baird. They're not working with kind of, uh, you know, a director from, you know, who done worked on TNG. Do you think they were kind of like, you know, Star Wars is back and there's all these other, you know, sci-fi properties, the Matrix has blown up and they were like kind of almost nervous about what they were even making?
0: I think they definitely felt that they needed to go in a different direction after Insurrection because I I wonder if the criticism for Insurrection was like, yeah, same old, same old. You know, it it felt like a a perfectly nice two-part episode. But I I do remember the the chatter back in the day and they're like, no, we got to, we got to amp up the budget we got to go uh, a little bit darker you know let, let's let you know m- make this kind of a, a gritty sort of star trek movie you know they're a couple years ahead of i like, guess the batman begins you know kickoff to the way that you kind of revamp big franchises you know i just for whatever reason it just there, there's just that energy lacking within this adventure
1: yeah and i think there's something interesting about you know Picard examining the roads not taken and looking at Shinzon as an example of what he could have wound up to be kind of ties back to a story like Tapestry, which is an all-time great Picard story, and considering, you know, how he could have turned out differently. But, you know, on a blockbuster canvas, it feels just kind of half-assed, and you don't get that sort of deep character exploration. I think fans want... And I don't know that, like, if I was a general audience member, and I guess I was, honestly, when I went and saw this movie. I don't know that there's a lot to draw from the movie because it's not giving you action that's particularly impressive. And it felt at that time a little outdated as it's like playing opposite, you know, the latest Lord of the Rings movie.
0: Yeah. Well, look, let's jump over to the spin-off, Star Trek Picard. He's not in a great place. He's living uh, with his Romulan helpers. <laughs> he's been better. <laughs> uh, he's really doing bad interviews for the Federation news service. Uh, he's very bitter. And look, he finally just admits it. I haven't been living. I've been waiting to die. And I think that really encapsulates where we start things off with this series. And guess what? By the end of it, he dies. <laughs> so yeah. It's like, okay. Um. Oh, here. Here's the worst part of this, though. It reveals Picard to be a complete narcissist in which, you know, the, he's like, no, no, I'm not going to ask, you know, Will or Geordie or Worf for help because they'll just say yes no matter what, no matter how dangerous this is. Let's call on these other losers, you know. Let's convince this <laughs> woman who is now addric- addicted to drugs who I got fired from her job at Starfleet. And guess what? Uh, you know that loser Elnor? yeah that uh, young boy whose feelings I absolutely crushed when I abandoned him like twenty years ago. I bet he'll do anything in which it's a mission with no hope, and I'll abandon him once more it's It's just like that after that. I'm just like like the 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 character does not come off well whatsoever in this, and you even remember like he's just making those kind of flip remarks to uh not dodge but uh, Soji when they land on Npenthe. And it's, like, it's finally where, like, Troy has to talk to him. And it's, like, try to think of things from her perspective. And you'd think that Picard would have learned that lesson already in this point in his
1: life. When you look at the Picard that kicks off Star Trek Picard, do you feel like it's a natural progression from where we left him at the end of Nemesis?
0: Yes, I do. I, I yeah. Look, I, I it's not exactly an interesting sort of story to tell, but I don't think it is, you know, out of nowhere. It, it Nemesis left on a real bummer tone. And I just assumed that was the last we'd ever see of Picard. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I guess technically, you know, the, the season finale of season one was the last we saw of real Picard, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to take this, um it, it, with my mind open the uh, the next two seasons of Star Trek Picard as if this is an adventure with a fella and he has room to grow, but I, I don't know, like I, I almost wish as if the the spinoff was him as like the commandant on at Starfleet Academy because then he would have been surrounded by young folks that he couldn't inspire rather than finding him kind of wallowing in this place of of loneliness and not having any real mission in life anymore.
1: And I think you could make the argument the show is trying to show that Picard, as much as he was this inspiring leader on, you know, the Enterprise D&E with that crew, that the crew were also keeping him stable, like he needed that crew to somewhat guide his life as well, and that without them, um, things don't go particularly well, and it does seem like removed from the situation he had on the enterprise um things didn't work out so well with starfleet it doesn't seem like his personal life went particularly well so it's it i guess kind of begs the question like was picard just meant to be among that group of people and couldn't exist outside of them
0: yeah i you know like i which i, I just remember when uh i i was watching this uh series go on and our fallen comrade benjamin young he kept getting upset that raffi was calling him yo jl hmm. and it, it it's as if they were tr- the, the writers were trying to acknowledge that he had a life beyond the tng crew there were other people that were close to him in life but did it come off as real authentic like um I, I believe in those relationships that he may have developed later on, but I, I don't believe that there's any more relationships more important to him than the ones that he had with that uh, Enterprise D crew.
1: No, it doesn't feel like it. And I think when you watch an episode like Nepente and you see him with Will and Deanna, like there is a Picard that comes out, you know, through Patrick Stewart's performance in that episode that feels a lot more authentic and emotionally real than the Picard who's in the rest of the season. And I think that's why that episode for me is head and shoulders above anything else that happens, you know, in the, in those 10 episodes.
0: And, and look, I would not have bought, you know, uh, Picard in, in season six of TNG running up to William... Riker and giving a big hug and let's get the pizza going on the Bobby or whatever. And it's like, I, I would not have bought that. And the fact is that there's enough passage of time and also your fondness for the characters and your knowledge of the actors and how close they are. It's like, it, it bleeds into what's unfolding here in the spinoff. And, and I do buy it, though.
1: And I think a real problem with me for Picard is that when you look at TNG, a lot of the um, Picard stories, we get to see how he relates to people like, you know, Deanna or Beverly or will on the show. And those stories are told through those relationships. Whereas when you get to Picard, he's often separated from that, you know, new crew that we have on the show. It's often him doing these kind of solo adventures while they have their little B story back on the ship. So you're not really seeing him grow through relationships. It's through plot mechanics. A lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, there is a moment that I do want to highlight in the season one finale of Picard, though, and it's where he's trying to explain that the uh, android planet, it, they, they shouldn't be destroyed. They are a sentient civilization, but they're a young civilization. So we have the option of destroying them for making a mistake and being um, ill-informed of, <laughs> of good choices, but why don't we let them learn from those mistakes? Why don't we guide them on the right path? And I, I think that's kind of like a, a, like a solid Picard moment for me. It just comes on the backdrop of, of like a, a rather frustrating finale, despite the fact that I, I think that the data goodbye sequence is, is one of my favorites that we've had in, in Star Trek period.
1: Yeah, that is a fantastic send off for data. Um, and I do like that whole sequence with Picard. I think that's a, it feels like two actors who are very comfortable with one another just really mining into a long relationship between those two characters. And that's, I think, a problem with the Picard show is just having him surrounded by newbies who don't have those long bonds. So you don't have that sort of... It's tougher to dig into it in a rich way. Um, I am really curious if I feel differently when we finish Picard season three, seeing him with this new cast over the course of two more years. I'm hoping that, like, it feels like there's a connection there that at the end means something to me and it draws something out of Picard because, like, what do you think Picard is going to be at the end of season three? You know, put on your, you know, uh, future predicting hat. Like, is the robot Picard just shutting down at the end of season three? Is there something beyond this?
0: I would like to think that he is very similar to Kirk at the end of The Undiscovered Country where he is inspired he has energy to him. He has a crew that he trusts behind him. And you can almost imagine the adventures going on in perpetuity, even though you get Captain John Harriman uh, just a few short later, uh, years later <laughs> taking over as the Enterprise B captain.
1: I had another question for you. When you look at that original crew, look how many times we've revisited them through other actors now. You know, we're going to go into our third Ahura on um, Strange New Worlds. <laughs> yeah. And Picard is one of the great icons. You know, he stands next to a Kirk and a Spock. Do you think in the future we're going to have, you know, recast Picard stories? Could we see a Stargazer series or movie or something like that?
0: Hey, look, when Tom Hardy needs those uh, paychecks, uh, yeah, for sure. Or, or James McAvoy, whoever comes first. Um, Yeah, I, I, could, I could totally buy a, a, a recast Picard, but the thing is, like I know what you're saying with like we're on our third Uhura at this point. Do like okay I alluded to it like uh, I saw Shatner uh this afternoon and I, it's like we haven't quite got there with Shatner either, and it's like we've had like Chris Pine, yep, you know, but that that I I can rationalize it as it's its own universe though. I just wonder if they want to and I I don't think they want to grand Moff Tarkin him either. Yeah, so I think they'll tread lightly, but it might be like 20 years down the road where there's just no possibility of bringing back Patrick Stewart uh, for whatever reason. Yeah,
1: I don't think it's going to happen in, you know, two years from now or anything like that, but it just feels like with, you know, you look at Spock, right, and the way they found a way to bring Zach Quinto in in the films, and then, of course, Ethan Peck later, I think they're going to have a tough time leaving Picard behind, saying, well, Patrick Stewart's retired, you know, Picard, the series is over. I just feel like there's always going to be that temptation and desire to dig into that character because he offers so much that other characters just don't. I know. Um,
0: so, Kim, uh, ultimately, pick a moment. What is a quintessential Picard moment for you? The the uh, character defining moments that kind of sticks into your brain. You don't have to overthink it, but uh, what is what grips you or, or grabs you if somebody just says the name Jean-Luc
1: Picard? Honestly, it's him playing the flute at the end of um, the Inner Light. That is what immediately jumps to mind.
0: Yeah, for me, I laugh if you want. It's not meant that way, but it's him rolling in the mud with Robert, because <laughs> like he he's at his most vulnerable there, and we rarely see him. But there's so much history there with him. Just he's just he had been dealing with the Borg stuff, and we see such an inspiring commander, like um, just kind of stripped to his bare bones right there and he bounces back very
1: quickly Mm -hmm. yeah no another great pick and that's the beauty of that character is that there's a billion answers to that question Mm, Uh, you know because Picard has so many great moments there's other characters we talk about on this podcast where you're like you remember Reed's greatest moment and we generally say yeah you know the stuff with him and Major Hayes okay well what else (laughs) you know Um, like there's only so many options Pineapple cake, yeah, there's only so many options. Whereas with Picard, they're endless and it's hard to disagree with any of them. Yeah.
0: Um, so, Kim, why don't we kind of talk about like, okay, season two. Like, it's, it's, how do you feel about this character of Gollum Picard? Like, can you kind of like, like, rationalize it, do your headcanon, whatever you have to do, and just kind of go with the flow and just
1: accept that this is Jean Luc Picard? I think I just have to. Yeah. And so much of this season, I think, is going to depend on how they convey the relationships he has with Q and Guinan. Because I think the best moment, as we've said, of Picard season one is, well, the best examples is Nepente with him opposite, you know, um, Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis, and the finale with him opposite Brent Spiner. Um not as Alton Sung as data. Um <laughs> wanna specify right, right. that. <laughs> so if you can have moments with him and Gynen and Q where we're drawing out sort of that older Picard who can reflect on the experiences of the past and we get that sort of that sort of motivational feeling of Picard coming out through those relationships, it could be really good, and I will be willing to put Robo Picard aside just because I know Patrick Stewart can hit it out of the park. But Robo Picard is always going to be there. I know. It's always going to be there and linger with us forever. I mean, that is the fate of that character.
0: I, I, I If I had my druthers, you know, uh, Q walks in, fl- flicks his fingers, and boom, it is Picard. Like, Robo Picard's not there anymore. It's the real, actual Picard. But I, I don't think that's going to happen. Otherwise, look, I'll just say it's the, the um, new showrunner he used to write for enterprise he did some cool episodes there he's been saying all the right things in interviews um i'm i'm looking forward to season two uh i i you and i felt a little burned by season one uh you and i i, I don't think we're those folks that just hate new star trek uh, arbitrarily uh we've been enjoying the animated stuff quite a bit we enjoyed the first two seasons of discovery so I'm going to leave my mind open and we can look forward to uh, at least, you know, for the first couple of weeks, we'll be doing like weekly reviews of Star Trek Picard and then we'll decide and um, where we want to go from there. But I, I, I'm i excited about whether we can, it just doesn't feel as if we've gotten the real Picard since like 1994, you know, like, and that's a weird yeah. thing to say. It, it, it's it been almost
1: 30 years. Yeah, no, that's definitely accurate. And I think they can do it. It's whether the writers can just tap into that because I'm not sure when I'm looking at his, you know, grand speech at the end of um, you know, Season 1 Picard that it feels like it's firing on all cylinders the way that some of the best writing was going on with TNG and those Picard moments, but if they can crack that, I think we can get back to it. I think we can walk away from this series being like that was the epilogue to Picard that leaves me satisfied it may not be what we would have done or what other fans would have you know imagined for the character but i think they could be content with it okay
0: well cam uh speaking of another star trek captain uh shatner was here in vancouver as of uh february 19th 20th yeah and um look look, this is my first experience back at a, a large convention since the pandemic Um, the way that it worked at Vancouver Fan Expo is you walk into this giant convention center. It was built for the 2010 Olympics. It is absolutely mammoth. There are, uh, subterranean floors. There are the ground floor, uh, higher floors up, which is to say it's a bit of a trek getting to where the, uh, expo was taking place. But I go in, I, uh, show proof of vaccination. I go down into the subterranean, uh, convention floor, uh, you know those escalators I'm talking about. Just absolutely mammoth, and it's just really cool. Just as I scurried down, you could see all the people below in their cosplay. I have not really seen that in a long, long period of time. Go ahead. Uh, easy enough to uh, get my ticket scanned, my QR code scanned. I uh, get my bracelet, and uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm off to the races. Uh, wander around the vendor's hall for a bit until Ming-Na Wen. Uh, that you might know as uh, Fennec Shand or the voice of Mulan from the Disney film back in the day. She's also Melinda May and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. She is on stage at about, uh, I think it was 1.30 p.m. And uh, she is a natural when it comes to these sorts of conventions. Like, she's cracking jokes. She was just giving, like, smart, thoughtful answers. She was having fun with the crowd. Cam, you've been to conventions where it's like, it's like throwing uh, a tennis ball at Drape's, yeah, um, <laughs> Marina <Baccarin. laughs> Um But like, uh, this was just pitch perfect. Like I, you could not have asked for kind of a better guess. And guess what, even unprompted, um, somebody said, like, if you're ever going to do any sort of other franchise or IP, you know, intellectual property, like, what would you be interested in doing? And she's, it wasn't like somebody was saying, would you want to do Star Trek? She just said, yeah, you know, like, um, I'd like to do Star Trek. You know, I hear that Bill's uh, in uh, the building right now. Maybe I can uh, talk to him or stick around on stage when uh, he comes out later and on. So that's kind of how I'm connecting Uh, kind of uh, her uh, appearance on stage to kind of the the Star Trek theme of our podcast. But uh, yeah, I could not have asked for like kind of a better uh, person uh, to kind of be my reintroduction for these uh, convention experiences, which is uh, just a hoot. Um I ended up moving seats and I, I I sat there, planted myself in like a pretty good uh position for like the next uh forty minutes uh just sitting there waiting for uh Shatner to come out on stage. he came out on stage about uh two fifty eight and he left at three thirty three uh migmal Wen was there for four full forty five minutes and so this is shorter, huh. yeah, and this is kind of where things went uh haywire in that he comes out on stage the moderator is no longer there and you know we've been in enough you know shatner panels this guy does not need a moderator at all no and he's looking around and he's just like ah great to be in vancouver and uh, he's talking about this uh indigenous restaurant that uh, used to be in town that he really really liked and he's asking if there's another place similar or you know so people are yelling uh suggestions but here's the problem he couldn't hear anything that people were yelling at him. It is very clear, like... um, And I don't think it's, like, because he's hard of hearing. It's just, like, the way that the stage is set up, the uh, format of the convention floor, it's very hard to hear if, like, you're just yelling at somebody on stage. And I think this is what happened because he turns around and he asks, okay, people, start asking me questions. um, And then he realizes there's no microphone set up like there was with Ming-Na Wen. There are no microphones. So it's just people yelling questions or waving their hands out from the crowd And he's like, okay, no sound system or no mic system, huh? Uh, Okay, I guess I'll talk about space. And so he starts talking about uh, his journey into outer space. He's getting laughs, and they eventually bring mics out. But I think Shatner did not realize that. And so for a full, I'd say, 30 minutes, he talks about this journey into space. And I knew I was in trouble at the 10-minute mark where... He was just talking about, like, uh, going to sleep one night, deciding whether he's going to do it, and then, you know, he walked up some a flight of stairs at the Blue Horizon facility, and, you know, they're uh, not at sea level, so the elevation was high, and he was out of breath. And I'm like, oh, my God, he has not even gotten to the part of actually being in outer space, and we're already 10 minutes into the story. He doesn't think that there's going to be any Q&A, and the mics are there for people to do q a but no one's able to ask any questions of him he just tells this story for a long time and i have to say like uh, i i was bored out of my mind like after about like you know 12 minutes it was just kind of like he got some laughs there but like what can he say it's like yeah i went out to space it was fun but he was just filling up time he did not want to have to like field questions that were being yelled at him and so you know 35 minutes he's off stage and this was unfortunately just like one of my least favorite uh, Shatner appearances. And I don't know, I was just, I was just kind of bummed out that... Uh, I, I'm so glad I got to see Ming-Na Wen, because if it was just Shatner, I, I would have been bummed out. But Cam, you were telling me that there's been like a series of cancellations this past weekend for Fan Expo. And as far as I could recall, Shatner is only ever supposed to appear on stage on Saturday. But I'm looking at the schedule now, and now he's signed up to go on stage again on Sunday. But this is labeled now as a Q&A. And I'm like, hmm. okay. W- were there just so many cancellations that they just said, "Hey, buddy, we'll we'll pay you, and just stick around and um, for one more day." And I'm Shat will never say no, but I don't know. I was just I was just very bored. There there were some moments of where I was like, "What am I listening to?" This is amazing. He imitated the announcer from the Hindenburg, where he was, kept thinking in his mind that uh, he's on a hydrogen powered rocket ship. And he kept thinking about the Hindenburg, and he started going, Oh, the humanity, you know, like that sort of (laughs) stuff. You know, uh, he was talking very briefly about his newest album, and there's a smattering of applause. He's like, Oh, four people have heard of it. And um, he's like, They didn't buy it. (laughs) Those four people, they just heard of it. And um, so it's just him being kind of like, um, you know, kind of that uh, uh, self uh, depreciation, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, kind of funny. Um, You know, I, it was just a very weird experience um and then uh, beyond that i discovered um camp when i started going to these uh fan expo conventions i, I, I was 27 and i realized i'm now 37 and mm. i feel just so out of the loop when it comes to like genre and fandom stuff there's just so many different things featured there that i just i don't even have a clue and i realize like um, it's like there's all these teens that are there as well. I, I, I don't remember being like just these conventions being flush with teens, mostly because we go to the Star Trek one and th- that doesn't lean towards the, uh, the younger crowds.
1: But at the Fan Expo, it's like, do you have memories of seeing just a lot of teens there? I do remember seeing a lot of young people for the anime stuff.
0: Young people, yeah. But I'm I'm talking about, like, just, like, real high schoolers and them making, like, a a huge contingent. And and it makes me realize it's kind of the the genre fandom kind of base. It's, like, I've gone past it. You know, I'm at that age where it's just kind of like I uh, – there's so many references that I don't get. Cam, did you know that Captain Crunch is, like, a huge, like, cultural thing now? I I don't know why, but there was so much Captain Crunch, like, um, merchandise to – buy i I need to look it up i need to do some research maybe uh, our our listener can uh, inform us what the deal is with captain crunch but it's just that sort of stuff that i was just like way over my head but um as you mentioned there's a lot of anime stuff but look there's um even just the marvel stuff i think it wasn't as big 10 years ago Hmm. it was still huge but like it was just it's become something like no other which i think is why there's a lot of teens there more so than i'd usually seen for eternals um, right eternals merchandise (laughs) They're all dressed as Angelina Jolie, yes. So, um, yeah, so anyways, look, um, I don't know if you have any questions for me, Cam, but it was just that, that look, like, I, I, I had a blast going. It made me feel old, uh, but not as old as Shatter.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's interesting that there is kind of this history of very shaky panels involving Star Trek stars, because we saw Nichelle Nichols some years ago, and Nichelle Nichols obviously was having issues at that point, I think, Emerging dementia because it was pretty obvious to us where we were sitting that she was struggling. But that aside, they did her no favors. So there was like no microphone. She clearly didn't know what the panel was supposed to be, and people were just shouting stuff out, and it didn't go well at all. It was another train wreck. So it's like yeah, Fan Expo has a weird history of just not doing a very good job setting up their panels.
0: Yeah, I will say I, I did like what I experienced um this year more. What was the um. Carrie Fisher won the last one that you and I went to, or did we go, or was it the George Takei one?
1: Ah, uh, George Takei, yeah, it was like George Takei, Wallace Sean, and um, Paul I think
0: right, is Right, from
1: Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, yeah. so
0: that was that twenty nineteen. Probably yes. Yeah, so three years later. So yeah, that's 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 crazy. I I, well, I was going to say the um Carrie Fisher one, she canceled. Mm-hmm. And that she was the only one we were going to see that day. And so we kind of walked in. Then there's a sign that says, sorry, Kish- uh, Carrie Fisher canceled. And oh, no, no. It said postponed. Postponed, yeah. Uh, and then what happened a few um, months later? Yeah. Permanent
1: postponed. Yeah, Post- yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so it's just that that was the year that, you and I we just walked around the vendors hall for about an hour. And then we called it a day after I think we spent like 40 bucks or something.
1: Did you buy anything in the vendors hall today?
0: Uh, just a gift. Uh, for my girlfriend. Um, hmm. so that's about it. Um, uh, speaking of gifts for my girlfriend, um, she got this for me for Valentine's Day and there's a, uh, pretty cool subspace shout-out from one, um, very, very notable Star Trek star. Tyler.
1: No, I'm sorry. That's not the right answer. I am Nana Visitor. I played. Oh, Tyler. I'm surprised. I checked out subspace transmissions. You seem to know everything. No, no, I wasn't Dax. I was Major Kira. Well, maybe the silver hair fooled you. Let's give you the benefit of the doubt. I have the honor of wishing you happy Valentine's Day.
0: From Rosalind, because she gave me the honor of delivering that message.
1: As a matter of fact, I'm wishing both of you a beautiful, beautiful Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day.
0: Well, excellent. So, Rose, I just want to thank you once again for that wonderful um. Uh, valentine's day gift there but uh cam yeah just any other questions about fan expo are you you ready to wrap up uh or or would you go next year are are you ready to
1: return to the convention scene i would have gone this year it was entirely because you and i just didn't take it seriously like we're like ah it's just gonna be like canceled or whatever so it's like i didn't book the time off work and unfortunately in a cruel twist of fate i have next weekend off so it's like oh god like I could have actually gone had it fallen next weekend or whatever but that was not to be so I will 100% be at the next one or whatever the next thing is here sci-fi summit if that happens whatever I'll be there but yeah that was a real bummer because I just genuinely didn't take this seriously as an event that would actually happen given that I'd had other events that had been canceled for this month
0: and just for those not not in Canada, like I, we've had um, stricter restrictions in uh, our province, uh, British Columbia, than you would have in like a typical US state. So um, a lot of the restrictions are easy now. And look, the, the entire time, um, oh, oh I, I should have had this. It was busy. Like it was packed. It was not like a skimpy, sad, kind of like half capacity sort of deal. Um, you know, uh, it was just like, I, it felt like, they're like people are like really ready to come back and enjoy this kind of fan experience i felt safe the entire time they were checking our uh vaccine passports they were everybody was wearing masks a lot of people were doing really clever things in cosplay with masks my favorite had to be the woman dressed like super mario and so that her face mask had like the mustache and (laughs) uh the, the face and all uh that was really cool um i felt completely safe being at this convention. Um, so we'll be uh, going to Las Vegas this summer as well. My suspicion is the uh, um, the rules in Vegas are not quite going to be the same rules as in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, I would be surprised if they're going to be checking for vaccination status by then. I would be surprised if they're going to be enforcing some sort of uh, mask mandates as well. Um, I'd be delighted if they did both those things, but... Um, I don't know, man. Uh, it, it's a different country, and so I, I, I've got to uh, accept that there are cultural differences and, and uh, different uh, sorts of tolerances for restrictions, too.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a wild ride, Vegas, this summer, but I will be at that con, and I'm looking forward to it a lot. I will say, actually, my friend, um, her son, who's 12 years old, went to um, Fan Expo today to meet Shatner. He recently went back and watched all of TOS and just absolutely fell in love with it. He's working his way through TNG right now. I think he's in season three at this point, around there. End of season two, early season three. But um, he went and did a photo op with Shatner. Apparently he was very nervous. The photo came out very well, I gotta say. For someone who was going nervously into their first ever photo op, I think anyone who's been to a con knows how awkward those photo ops can potentially (laughs) be. And Shatner's not known to be the most... um, welcoming i suppose or you know he doesn't kind of get up and greet you as you come in to do your photo i guess i'll just say um but the photo came out actually quite well so you know props taran for getting an actual good photo your first time out i can't say that i did that
0: um <laughs> uh, just warn taran that this is not the best i've seen shatner he, he's done far better panels than this um and maybe after we wrap up uh the recording uh send me a photo
1: I, i'm very curious about uh how taran's uh, photo went for sure, will do. And he had a great time, so this probably won't be his uh, last con. And, uh, you know, but it was kind of that moment I I pushed his mom to be like, get him to this con. You just don't know. Shatner's 90 years old. You don't know when he could retire from these cons. He may not be back in Vancouver. Whoever knows, right? I'm, you know, I'm pretty
0: committed uh, going to Vegas and getting, finally getting my photo with Shatner. It's, it's always kind of that, that big price tag. But I'm like, you mm-hmm. know what? I, you just got to bite the bullet. I think it was going to be more expensive at Fan Expo, which is why I didn't do it um, th- this
1: go-round, but I will do it uh, come this August. Cool. Yeah, and I think I will be doing a photo op with Walter Koenig this year, one that I've also kind of been putting off because of the price tag. Yeah, well, props to you, sir.
0: Uh, yeah, well, that's good to hear. Uh, okay, uh, maybe I can kind of lay out the plan. I, I've kind of alluded this uh, t- to this for listeners. Um, the next few weeks, we'll be doing a little bit of a Discovery catch up, and then Picard will uh, premiere. So, essentially, next week, we'll do two episodes of Discovery, and then we'll do Picard and Discovery all in one episode. So, episode one of Picard, and like I think it's like episodes like 11 of Discovery. Then we'll follow up with episode two of Picard episode 12 of discovery. And so we'll do that for the first three episodes of Picard until we get to the finale of discovery. And I think you and I can kind of decide how we want to take Picard. Do do we do it week to week for all of its second season? We did grant that same sort of, um, uh, uh, framework towards Discovery Season 2 as well. Or maybe we want to go back to kind of these uh, old school sorts of uh, Three Errors Picard, kind of the, these fun sorts of frameworks that we like uh, doing uh, week to week. So it'll be an interesting couple of weeks as we kind of determine the future of the, the, uh, the way we do the podcast. But I'm pretty committed. You might be as well, but Strange New Worlds, I, th- I think that would
1: deserve like week to week, at least for its first season. Definitely. I would like to fit in an episode, maybe if we can, at some point. We've just heard a fourth Kelvinverse movie seems to be happening, fingers crossed. Maybe looking at what the Kelvinverse, you know, needs to do going forward. I think that could be really interesting as well.
0: Yeah, you know, that news, it did break in the last week. Um, For me personally, I, I'm just like, there's like this little, like, note within the story that said, yeah, they did market research and said that there's still affinity for those characters. That's why we're going back to the Kelvinverse. My my understanding is it's like whoever the head honcho is now because it's just turnover after turnover after turnover within the Viacom, CBS, Paramount sort of umbrella. Um, I think it's just the new boss just needed that affirmation about like the market testing because from what I understand, there, there's a script is already in the can. It was confirmed back in July when Matt Shackman, the director of this uh, new film, came on. But there's also those other scripts that were being worked on. You know, I guess that S.J. Clarkson movie, we'll never really know what that was about. The Noah Hawley one seemed to have nothing to do with the Kelvinverse. Uh There's also that Kalinda Vasquez one that's i'm not really sure what that was about and then of course there's that tarantino script that's um it's becoming less and less likely that will ever see the light of day but uh, look I'm, I'm pumped to see the calvin crew again what it sounds like is just they got to cross their t's dot their eyes there were some very valid contractual issues that pine had when it came to the original plan with uh reunited him with uh his dad, uh, Chris Hemsworth, uh, a.k.a. George Kirk, in which the then studio head was just like, no, we're not going to pay you uh, what we had promised you. Sorry. And that that was, seemed like utter BS. But uh, yeah, I, I'm pumped for the return of the Kelvinverse.
1: Yeah, I'm genuinely optimistic. I know that like Beyond has almost no mark on pop culture whatsoever at this point. But I did enjoy a lot of that movie. And I think there's still energy with that cast. And I just would like to see them go out on a high as opposed to a, a movie that people go, you know, yeah, that was pretty good. You know,
0: do you think that the biggest mark that Beyond had on pop culture was the blue jacket that uh, Kirk was wearing throughout much of it?
1: You know, it might be. I was talking to my friend uh, Parv, whose son Taryn was at the uh, Fan Expo, and we were just talking about the verse because she said her son didn't really like those as much as the original movies. And... um I was going through and I I brought up Into Darkness and she instantly was like, of course, with Khan. And she rolls her eyes about the casting of Benedict Cumberbatch or whatever. And I brought up Beyond and there's just kind of a blank moment of, yeah, what's that one about? And it's like, oh, that's the one that's even newer. And the fact that it just doesn't have anything to kind of latch onto. You know, I can say Idris Elba, but he's in alien makeup through the whole movie. Do people even really realize it until the last few minutes when he's suddenly, you know, closer to the human Edison? So... Yeah, it just seems like Beyond, it's a decent movie, well-reviewed. I think audience scores were pretty decent, but it's not a movie that's lingered in the consciousness of, I think, just the general public.
0: Yeah, uh, which is kind of a bummer. It's like, you and know, I, we, we both ranked it our number five Star Trek film of all time. Yeah. It, it's like a very competently made movie. I think it's just missing some sort of spark somewhere. I, I can't quite pinpoint it.
1: But you can almost sense that right from the marketing, which also was missing that sort of spark as well. It's like yeah. it was always just missing something, that certain quality that would just put a movie like that over the top. But it still has a lot of great elements, and it's one I think is worth revisiting if you haven't seen it in a while. So, yeah, I think on that note, our assignment is complete. Um, you can find us, of course, on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V in vote yes for the Stargazer spinoff, Smith.
0: Uh, you can find me at Reporton, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N, N S N as in... Never gonna say no to a Shatner panel, despite being a little disappointed this time. And folks out there, I'd also urge you if you've got your podcatcher, you can not only leave us five stars, but leave us a, a written review. It doesn't have to be an essay or anything like that, but it's the it's the star ratings plus the reviews that really help with the algorithm. It's a free podcast. This is all we're asking uh, you to do. We, there's no there's no ads for DraftKings or me undies or anything <laughs> like that. So uh, th- that's it and I'll also go to our Facebook. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not sure which um, advertising is being directed at you, Cam, but I don't even know what you're talking about. (laughs) Uh, But um, you can also go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod and follow us there. You'll get all of our updates instantly with regards to our episodes. And um, I also, I, I like getting into the habit of like posting some classic episodes that maybe some of our new listeners might not have been
1: familiar with. Definitely. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Fan, and we we'll go sit around a long table we we'll
0: tell them what our idea is, we'll shoot a documentary we'll, get to that, we'll go up and he we'll Oh, well, well, we'll call you back. And then COVID hit and the whole thing went into the tubes
1: for about a year. And then I read that Jeff Bezos is going to go off himself. And my friend, the producer, whose name was uh, Josh, Berlin uh, Josh says, Uh, maybe uh, Bezos will choose you to to go with him, and instead, Jeff Bezos chose his brother. And then instead of, he had four people, he had two, uh, he and his brother, he chooses uh, a lady astronaut who never did go up, and he chooses a kid, Some youngster who deserved the (laughs) notion.